Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that this morning the words may not be my words, but your words. And that you will open our hearts, our minds, and our wills to hear what you might want to say to us. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I look around today and I see some of you who are in the congregation. When I came here in 2001, I see others who joined us in the 14 years that I was here. I find it very interesting that most of you are sitting in the same seats. That's <laughs> <laughs> when I last saw you, which makes it easy to remember who folk are. Sadly, of course, I also miss others as I look out. Others who were so much part of this place and who've died and whose memories we treasure. But I also see many others who I don't know at all. And that's just great because it means that you've joined over the past few years. I've got to be very careful this morning and not use too many of the illustrations that I used when I was here. Otherwise, you'll think maybe I'm losing it in my old age. But you may remember the story of the bishop who was visiting a wealthy contact. And he didn't know really what to say as he was strolling in the garden and came across the gardener. So just to make conversation, he said to the guy, that's a very fine broom you've got there, my man. Yes, it is, sir, replied the gardener. And since I've had it, I've had four new handles and nine new heads. Well, that's the church. Four new handles, nine new heads, the same thing, but always changing. Folk leaving for a variety of different reasons, but also, and crucially, a church constantly renewed as others find faith and start to worship. And the question I want to ask you, as you worship here this morning, perhaps after many, many years, perhaps for the very first time this Sunday, the question I want to ask you is, are you pressing on in the faith? In your own personal life, are you still pressing on in growing towards the likeness of Jesus Christ? And as a church, are you still pressing on as you seek to live out your life and worship and witness at the heart of the nation and in one of the key centers of British Methodism. And the reason I ask this particular question is twofold. First of all, some months ago, I started thinking about what on earth I was going to say to you when I came. When you've preached as many sermons here as I have, you can't think what on earth you might think that's new. And the thing that God laid on my heart was, keep pressing on. And then secondly, and far more importantly, when I looked up the phrase in the Bible, I discovered it was in this passage of Scripture that Bid has just read to us. Philippians chapter 3 and verses 12 to 16. And there we are told to keep pressing on. So let's have a look at the passage and see what we might learn from it. 
the context is that Paul's been talking previously about it being a waste of time keeping the written law and its myriad different nitpicking things that you were meant to do, and especially keeping the rules on circumcision. And Paul points out how he had kept the law in every part, and yet he now realizes that it's, and the word he uses here in uh, Philippians is rubbish. He says it's rubbish. And it's rubbish, he says, because the one thing that matters is knowing Christ. Christ in life, Christ in example, Christ in suffering, Christ in death, Christ in resurrection. Then he goes on to say, and it's a realistic assessment of where he is, verse 13, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Do you know there's some Christians who think they have got hold of it? They think they've got this Christian life pretty well sorted out. They think, that, that, as they look in the mirror, well, I'm doing a good job. I'm doing a good job as a Christian. And sadly, some Christian leaders, leaders of a certain kind, seem even worse. And I've got to confess that I find they really wind me up. Think about St. Paul who's written this. St. Paul has been shipwrecked. He's been beaten. He's survived attempts on his life. He's been used in great healings. He's led hundreds to faith. And of course, he's heard the very voice of Jesus and he's been taken up in ecstasy and seen a glimpse of heaven. And this man who's experienced all this says, I haven't got there yet. I haven't got there yet. Are you encouraged by that? I am. Because if this great saint St. Paul is still on the Christian journey, I look at myself way back from where he was, but on that same journey, and it gives me hope. So if you know that as yet you're not there, then that's great. It's the people who think they've arrived who need to worry. You and I may be in a rusty old car which stops and starts and breaks down a bit, but at least we're not sitting smugly in a lay-by drinking coffee and thinking that we've arrived. We need to become the person God wants us to be. And none of us are there. We're all of us on that journey. And then the second half of verse 12 Paul says here, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, sorry, brothers, I don't, he says in verse 14, sorry, I press on. And he says, what does it say he presses on towards? It says, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. He presses on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of him. The question I want to ask each of you this morning is, has Jesus Christ taken hold of your life? Only you know that. Only you know the answer. 
Only you know whether or not you're playing at discipleship or whether or not you're serious about it. Only you know whether you're putting God's will as your number one priority or whether God is pretty well down the list. Only you know whether you've been listening and listening time and again, year after year, to the good news gospel message, perhaps from this pulpit, and yet you've never got off the fence as yet. You've never made your decision to follow Jesus Christ. And do you know because God's not a bully? Because God's not a bully, the choice is yours. The choice is yours. The example of Jesus the cross of Jesus, the resurrection new life of Jesus, these are all there, lined up for you. And God longs to touch your life and take hold of it. But the choice as to whether or not you respond to that love reaching out to you, it's yours. Paul then says that he knows he's not yet taken hold of it. In verse 13, he says, brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal. I get so frustrated by those preachers who say that they're going to make one point and then they go and make three points. But that's what Paul says. He says, but one thing I do, and straight away tells us two things that we've got to do. The first thing is he forgets what is behind. I find it very easy to forget where I left my keys, forget where I put my phone, forget when I've parked my car if I've been to a football match. Very easy to forget the things that Biddy's asked me to buy at the supermarket and I come home without them. And yet I find it quite hard to forget what lies behind me. Paul says here, forget it. Not those trivial things that I've mentioned. For Paul, the things he needed to forget were two main things. He needed to forget that he'd been a zealous Jew, persecuting the Christians, standing there, watching their clothes while Stephen was stoned to death. He needed to forget that. However, he also needed to forget all that he'd achieved as an apostle. He couldn't afford to rest on his laurels. Do you find it's hard to forget? It's hard to forget that stupid decision which ruined your life for many years. It's hard to forget that time you knew that what you were doing was sin, but you went ahead of it in any case. It's hard to forget that bitterness and resentment that you still feel about the way you were treated at work or in your family or sadly even in a church. And it's also hard to forget the years of service that you've offered to God through the work of the church or some charity or community cause. But as a theologian once wrote, a Christian must forget all that he or she has done in the past and remember what is still to be done. Don't let the past both spoil your present 
and capture your future. Let it go. Now you might say to me, Martin, I brought these, this thing from the past to God, but it nags at me. I, I brought it to God. I can never seem to be free from it. But the truth is that if you have sincerely offered that thing to God, he wants you to be free of it. Let me illustrate this. It's as if I offended my wife, Billy, in some way. Now, you might look at me and think I'm such a proper and upright and perfect parson that I would never offend my dear wife. Just have a word with her afterwards and uh, she might well put you straight on the matter. I'm sure she would. But imagine the scene. I've, I've offended Bridie. I've said something to her on the Saturday night and I wake up and I feel really bad about it. And on the Sunday morning I say to her, I'm really sorry about what I said. Please forgive me. And Biddy, being a far better Christian than me, says to me, of course I forgive you, dear. Of course I forgive you. Then on the Monday morning, I say to her again, I'm really sorry about what I said on Saturday night. Please forgive me. And Biddy replies, of course I forgive you, dear. I told you that yesterday. Then on the Tuesday morning, I come to her, and I say to her, I'm really sorry about what I said. Please forgive me. And even saintly Biddy's grace is running a bit short. And she says, don't you believe that I told you I forgive you? I've already told you twice I've forgiven you. And if I went on and on every day like that, asking her for forgiveness, after a month or so, she'd be wanting a divorce, I should think. <laughs> the Bible tells us that our sin is buried in the deepest sea. The Bible tells us that although we keep remembering our sin, when we confess it, God remembers it no more. And the Bible scholars tell us that in the Greek, this word for forgetting is a dynamic word. It's a continuous word. It's a word that implies a continuous, ongoing action. Putting away those things that hold you from the past. Putting them away deliberately, day by day by day. So that if you have been truly sorry, you've confessed, you've come to God, don't let the past still hold on to you. We saw Malcolm White, my dear colleague, earlier in the service on the screen. And I was once troubled about a folly from my past. And I went and spoke to Malcolm about it. And he reminded me of a verse of a hymn from Charles Wesley. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Your sin has been cancelled. Don't let it still have power over you. Don't stay in that prison of guilt and past regret. Rather do what Paul suggests here forget what lies behind and then the second thing Paul tells us to do here is to look forward that's in verses 13 and 14 I got to it a bit earlier I think didn't I I press on towards the goal to win the prize he says straining towards that which is ahead there's a lot of effort here 
straining forward, it says. And uh, I'm no Greek scholar, but the Bible commentaries tell us that in the Greek, the image is that of an athlete straining towards the tape at the end of a race. Pressing on, and apparently the same urgency is there in the Greek. And in these verses, we're reminded that there is no easy Christianity. When I was in the States a few years ago, I used to love watching uh, Christian TV stations. Some of them were excellent, but others were totally bizarre. And I have to say that those are the ones that I spent most of my time watching, because they, <laughs> they amused me greatly, to be quite honest, also disturbed me greatly. And I should never forget one preacher speaking about what he called sweatless anointing. Sweatless anointing. And his theme was that God doesn't want you to sweat and strain in your faith. God just wants to bless you. There's no effort needed on your part. All you need to do is to sit back, enjoy the blessing. And how could you get hold of this sweatless anointing? All you needed to do was to send $10 for the video. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Because sisters and brothers, I tell you, there is no sweatless anointing available. There's only a cross to carry and decisions to make as to how you work out carrying your cross in the day-to-day, -day, the rough and tumble of everyday living. Yes, of course, the love of God will hold you and surround you in your Christian life. Yes, of course, the presence of Jesus will be with you, beside you, on your Christian walk. Yes, of course, the Holy Spirit will be there to guide you and help you and bless you. But there are hard choices that you have to make, we all have to make as we follow Jesus Christ. So as Paul puts it here, strain towards that which is ahead. Press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called you heavenward in Christ Jesus. So as an individual, you're encouraged to set yourself free from the chains of the past and press on with God. But today is your 110th church anniversary. And this passage also has something to say as to how we should be together. And I wonder if sometimes here at Methodist Central Hall, you need to forget what lies behind. Forget the history in the war years when folk were turned away and had to go to Westminster Abbey as second best. Forget the great preachers who visited here from time to time. Forget the former ministers such as myself, whose halos grow far more glowing across the years than they ever were when they were here in reality. Forget the congregation you had before COVID struck and wreaked its devastation in this church as in so many others. Forget all that behind and press on forward. How wonderful that amidst the strains and stretches of stresses and strains of COVID, this church led worship online for thousands more than could ever have fitted into the building. 
still holds a huge online congregation. How wonderful that at a time when our nation stood still at the death of our beloved Queen Elizabeth, this church was serving at the center, enabling the story of her final service to be shared. How wonderful that the conference business has survived when it could have gone bust. How wonderful that this church has survived on half the grant that they had when I was here. You have so much to thank God for on this anniversary Sunday. But in all this, you must hold together. In verse 15, Paul says, All who are mature should take such a view of these things. Speaking, we think, in the commentaries of the truths that he's been setting out. But this realist that is Paul knows that in any group of Christians, not everyone agrees on everything. Thus, the second part of this verse, if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. As the Bible scholar Mark, Ralph Martin says here, it is evident from this verse that the discussion was set against the background of controversy. Now, of course, now you've got uh, Tony here as your superintendent minister. And because he's a far more gracious person than me and a far less pugnacious person than me, it may well be that your church councils are just meetings of sweetness and light. <laughs> yes. yes, they are. I thought they would be with you chairing them. I hope they are. I, I reckon I chaired 52 church councils when I was here. And most were fine with a real sense of agreement. But sometimes people felt strongly about an issue. And thus they were difficult meetings. And that was fine. Fine because a church which is a monochrome church, a monochrome community, where all agree all the time, is not a healthy church. If you go for people of just one social class, one ethnic or national background, one outlook as to what the music would be like, one view of theological truth, then life may be easier, but it is not as authentic. In this Westminster Fellowship, there will be differences about politics, and now no doubt especially about trussonomics. There will be differences as to how you perceive helpful worship, there will be differences in your financial and intellectual backgrounds. There will be differences in what you think is a proper Christian view on teetotalism, on baptism, on pacifism, and without a shadow of doubt in what you think about human sexuality and same-sex marriage. Now, I'm not saying that whatever you think about these various matters is not important. I'm not saying that everyone is right. What I am saying is that none of these peripheral things should be central. None of them should take the place of Jesus Christ at the center. None of them as important as the main challenge here. Creating a church that holds within her the likeness of Jesus Christ. That here, Sunday by Sunday, week by week, 
month by month, year by year, this community should be the eyes of Jesus, the voice of Jesus, the ears of Jesus, the hands of Jesus, and the loving heart of Jesus. So, my sisters and brothers, I pray that you may press on together until you get there. Thanks be to God for his word to us. Amen.